Good morning, everybody. Officially, the title today is, It's Probably Weird to Watch Someone Eat Broiled Fish. Um, officially, that's the title of this morning's sermon, and we'll get a little more into that here in just a moment. Um, we're going to talk about the story of when Jesus appeared to the disciples in Jerusalem after the resurrection. Last week, we talked about uh, his journey with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and can I say, this last week, um, I, I read a lot more things about this story of the road to Emmaus uh, that I wish I had read before we talked about it. I didn't know this. Maybe this is common knowledge to you. I didn't know this, that there's this running theory that one of the disciples was female. Um, and not only female, but there's this theory that the disciples were actually a married couple. And there are several things in the story that sort of allude to that. Like Cleopas is named. He's the only one who has a speaking part. The other person is not named, and Jesus goes to their home where he stays. And so there's a lot of people who say uh, that perhaps this was like a married couple that were together disciples of Jesus. I don't know if that means anything at all, but I thought that was amazing. So I wanted to share it with you. So there you go. Um, but today we are talking about the next story at the end of Luke's gospel in which Jesus appears to the disciples in Jerusalem. And this story has about 10 million things going on in it. Uh, especially theologically, there's just all kinds of stuff happening. But even there in the moment, um, and in the context of what had been happening over the past few days about what Jesus was about to do, there's so many things that happened there. And ultimately, I want to talk about what happened with the disciples and what they did, and then what happened with Jesus and what he did. And I think this whole story is about the fact that you cannot claim to follow the eternal, resurrected Christ without also following the human crucified Jesus. You cannot claim to follow the eternal resurrected Christ without also following the human crucified Jesus. And that's what I think Luke is trying to tell us in this story. So, here's the story. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 35. Then the two from Emmaus told their story about how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I am not a ghost, because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. But still they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. And then he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it as they watched, which I think, as I stated earlier, would be incredibly awkward. And we'll get more to that in just a second. Then he said, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent, and you are witnesses of all these things. So let's talk first about the disciples and what's going on with them. You'll notice the disciples have zero speaking parts, and yet they are visibly present here during this thing. They, they don't say a word, but their expressions, their reactions say a ton. 
the first thing that Luke says is that they looked at him in disbelief. That they were frightened, and in their fright, they went, I don't believe what's going on here. Um, and this word, this, this disbelief, is the same word that Luke also used whenever Mary Magdalene came to the tomb, saw that it was empty, and went away in disbelief. Um, disbelief surrounds the entire story of the resurrection. And I think that's a really amazing thing that Luke does in the telling of the gospel, and especially in the telling of the resurrection story, because if you tell somebody that I follow this guy who was crucified, and then after three days he came back to life, they would probably be in disbelief. They would think you're crazy. And what Luke does is he doesn't take the disciples and go, yeah, 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 they knew what was going on the whole time. The disciples were fully aware of this thing. They knew what was up. They predicted what was going to happen. This wasn't a shock to them at all. No, you can include Jesus' closest friends in the group of people who are in disbelief about the resurrection. Um, Luke works disbelief into the story. It's okay if you hear about the resurrection and go, I don't really know about that. Because even Jesus' closest followers, when they saw him with their own eyes, went, I don't really know about this. What in the world is happening? And it wasn't just that a guy raised, was raised from the dead, which I have to believe that was probably a big part of it, that uh, John was there. John watched this whole thing unfold. He watched Jesus as he was crucified. He watched him as he died. He watched him as he was taken down off the cross and buried. And so surely John relayed all the details of Jesus' death on the cross to the rest of the disciples. They were fully aware of what went on. Not only were they fully aware of what went on with Jesus, but they knew what a, what a crucifixion was. And so they knew what was up. They knew that Jesus was dead. And so it's not just that this guy was dead and came back to life, but there's also some theological things happening here. And for the people especially who read the story of Luke initially, there would be a lot of theological questions about life after death. Because in the Jewish culture, there were lots and lots of opinions and theories and beliefs about what happened after a person died. And it went all the way back to the earliest stories of the Old Testament. In the earliest parts of the Old Testament, when people died, they rested with their fathers. Um, when Abraham died in Genesis 25, it says Abraham rested with his fathers. Same for Isaac in Genesis 35. Same for Jacob in Genesis 49. The same for Moses in Deuteronomy 34. And even the same for King David in 1 Kings. In each of the accounts of their death, it says that they died and they rested with their fathers. And so in the early Old Testament, there's not really this mention of they died and then like a bird, their soul flew up to heaven. Um, there's no mention of they died and then spent eternity with God. That, that's not part of the story of the early Old Testament. Later in the Old Testament, in two of the last books that were written chronologically, being Isaiah and Daniel. Daniel is the last book of the Old Testament that was written in, in terms of like, the time period when it was recorded, Daniel would be the last one. But in Isaiah chapter 26, it says, But those who die in the Lord will live, their bodies will rise again. Those who sleep in the earth will rise up and sing for joy. For your life-giving light will fall like dew on your people in the place of the dead. And so in Isaiah, we read this thing about there possibly being something happening after we die. And then in Daniel chapter 12, many of those whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting disgrace. 
And so Daniel also carries forward this idea that something happens to you after, die, after you die, but he also includes that it might be bad. It might not go well for you. And so the language about what happens after life and death grows throughout uh, the Old Testament stories, throughout the Old Testament passages. It talks about death in one way in the earliest of Old Testament stories, and then it talks about death in another way in the later Old Testament stories. Um, but then there's this intertestamental period, this, this 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Um, we, uh, we, we often don't really read those stories, and we don't include those. Most of you probably don't have those stories in your Bible. If you were Catholic, you would. Uh, we don't have those stories in our traditional Bibles that we use. Um, but I came across a quote this week that addresses what people thought in the intertestamental period about life after death. Here's what the quote says. The clearest statements of resurrection after Daniel 12 are found in 2 Maccabees, the Mishnah, and later rabbinic writings. In 2 Maccabees, a martyr on the verge of death puts out his tongue, stretches out his arms, and declares, I got these from heaven, and because of his laws, I disdain them. And from him, I hope to get them back again after death. And then according to the Mishnah, this is some wisdom writings from the rabbis uh, speaking about the Torah. From the Mishnah, it says, all Israelites have a share in the world to come. And these are they that have no share in the world to come. He that says there is no resurrection of the dead prescribed in the law. So as we get closer and closer to Jesus, these ideas of what happens after we die uh, take on some new shapes and some new dimensions. In the days of Jesus... You probably at some point in your life heard about the Sadducees, right? They didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were Sadducee. Right, good. Um, they were this group of, uh, of dominant religious teachers and thinkers in the days of Jesus who said, um, according to the earliest of Old Testament passages, when you die, you rest with your fathers. There is no resurrection. There is nothing that happens. Um, Enjoy this life because this is about all it is, and then you die, and then you're done. Um, Pharisees, however, as much as we trash them, Jesus sided with the Pharisees in terms of their belief in the resurrection. They believed that after you die, there's something that's going to happen. And they weren't entirely in agreement on what form that takes, but they believed that there was this world to come, this age to come. Jesus talked a lot about the age to come. He talked a lot about the fact that uh, at the end of time, there would be this coming together of heaven and earth. And then as we continue reading throughout the church and, and the, the initial days of the church, and especially you get to like Revelation where John is writing about the end of things. It's this coming together of heaven and earth. And so in that moment, going back to the, uh, to the room in Jerusalem with Jesus and his disciples, there would have been this wide spectrum of belief about life after death, I assume. Um, I can't imagine that everyone sitting in that room was in total agreement about what happened. But I think part of their disbelief, part of their shock, part of their uh, total and utter dumbfoundedness, I don't know if that's a word or not, but we're going to use it now, part of their dumbfoundedness is that I don't think they would have had a place in their theology for what they were looking at. Nothing prepared them for there being this resurrection three days after a person died. And so not only in the physical realm is this kind of blowing their mind, but theologically they didn't really have this, this place for that. 
And so they realized that God had done this new thing with the resurrection of Jesus. God had done this new thing with death, bringing life out of death. And it wasn't done by somebody else, right? Jesus raised people from the dead, but this was somebody who was dead. Nobody went to the tomb. Uh, nobody called out. Nobody prayed. Nobody did what Jesus had done when he raised people from the dead. Just by his own power, Jesus emerged from the dead. And so they had this disbelief. They had this doubt. They had this shock. And they had this fear. But in the midst of all of that, there was this joy. So on the one hand, they doubted and they had disbelief, but on the other, they were filled with joy. The cool thing that Luke does in his gospel with joy is that when he uses that word, it is typically in association with acceptance of something. Um, in chapter 2, whenever the angel appeared to Mary, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. In chapter 8, in one of Jesus' teachings, the seeds on the rocky soil represent those who hear the message and receive it with joy. In chapter 10, when the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. When Luke uses this word joy, it's that someone has accepted something, they agree with it, they buy into it, they absorb it, and because of that, they're filled with joy, except for here. Here, the disciples are filled with joy doubt, but still possess joy. Um, have you ever been filled with utmost doubt, racking your brain with questions, wondering if any of this is even real, wondering if God is really there, wondering about this whole heaven and hell thing, wondering about some kind of major theological thing, that you're filled with this doubt, yet you can't escape the joy that comes from being in Christ. It's counterintuitive. One is cognitive, the other is uh, a heart thing. One is something we experience with our brain, the other is something we experience with our life. And it was the presence of Jesus that brought this joy. As Ian mentioned earlier, joy is not happiness. Joy is more in line with peace, with contentment. In spite of what I'm seeing, I'm experiencing this state in which I am at peace with Jesus. And it's not just joy, but it's also wonder or uh, marveling, the act of marveling. And this word was also used by Luke at the resurrection of Jesus to describe Peter as he left the tomb, seeing it empty. He marveled. He was, in, he was at, uh, in a place of wonder at what had happened. And wonder is kind of this coming together of doubt and hope, right? I, I, I can't believe what I'm seeing, but I'm so hopeful that it's real and that it's true. Um, wonder is, in my opinion, the first posture all of us as followers of Jesus should take toward God. I think wonder is the place or is the way with which we come at anything we do in relation to our walk with Jesus. We come at stories about Jesus in Scripture with wonder. We come at our own discipleship with wonder. We come at prayer with a sense of wonder. We come at serving others with a sense of wonder, at a sense of not knowing quite what God's going to do, but assuming it's going to be big. Uh, Levi's not here with us this morning. He wasn't feeling super great, so 
Uh, we left without him, and he was asleep, so we're hoping this isn't like a home alone experience whenever he wakes up. But, um, uh, but the day he was born, um, you know, I mean, if, if you're a parent and you have experienced the birth of your child, like that's, that's something that just stays with you forever, and not just the, uh, not just the image of it or the picture of it, but, but also the emotion that goes along with it. And the emotion that I had when Levi was born is something that uh, I, I assume I'm going to hold on to my whole life. Um, it had been a long labor. We played a lot of Yahtzee. That's how we passed the time in the room. Um, and it had been a long labor, and nurses kept coming in and checking. And, you know, nurses, man, nurses uh, in delivery units are like the most amazing human beings in the world uh, because they have this ability to just take this thing that's uh, like literally life or death and act like uh, you're just having a cup of coffee together. You know, hey, everything looks great. Yeah, you guys, hey, Yahtzee, all right, great. You want me to turn off the TV? Like they're just, they're taking care of you, checking in on you. And they're just acting like everything's fine. But then all of a sudden you know when it's not because they walk in and they go, okay, we're going to need to get moving here. And that's what they did with Levi. They went in, came in and said, all right, blood pressures are starting to go up. Uh, this isn't, we're not alarmed yet, but uh, we're in the place where we need to do something or else some major thing is going to happen. And so they started talking about C-sections, which was something that obviously if you have had a child, especially if you've had a C-section, uh, that's not always ideal, um, but it, it, sometimes it's necessary. And so they started talking about maybe we're going to do this C-section. And so I went out to a family that was waiting in the waiting room. I started explaining to them what's going on, and we think this is going to need to happen. And so we're, we're kind of gearing ourselves up for that. So in my mind, I let go of any thought that Levi was going to be born there naturally in the delivery room. Um, and so I just kind of settled in, was waiting for people to come and start preparing for the C-section, when all of a sudden, here's this baby. And the first feeling that I had is one that I can only describe as wonder. Because it was simultaneously this sense of doubt that it was happening, because I had put out of my mind that this was happening anytime soon. It was simultaneously the sense of doubt and shock, but also this great overwhelming sense of hope, this, this great overwhelming sense of joy. And I don't have a picture of myself from that moment, but I assumed I looked something like this. Uh, because I remember just being frozen there, like, man, this was, just a, this was just a hypothetical thing for a while. You know, he had a name, but even the name was like this hypothetical thing. This wasn't real. This wasn't happening. But then all of a sudden, there's this flesh and blood uh, kind of blobby, crying loud kid that's real. And I, I have to believe that that's at least part of what the disciples experienced there in that room with Jesus, that uh, Jesus had alluded to some stuff throughout his ministry. You know, he had, he had made some comments about uh, tear down this temple and I'll raise it again on the third day. And so there were some things that Jesus had alluded to, but clearly when Jesus showed up with his disciples, they were not expecting that. And so there was this sense of both fear and doubt, but at the same time, joy and wonder. And where I think we take comfort in this story as followers of Jesus is that there is plenty of reason for you to be filled with fear and doubt about your faith in Christ. There is plenty of reason for you to ever wonder, is this thing real? Is this thing, is this thing worth it? But there's the sense of joy and wonder that occurs in the presence of Christ 
that overrides our doubt and fear. And I think this is not on accident the first encounter that Jesus has with his disciples. This one of doubt and fear that was overcome with joy and wonder. All right, that was the disciples. I want to talk about Jesus for a minute. Um, Jesus said some things in this uh, passage that, uh, that just seemed kind of strange to me. Um, for one thing, he asked if, if they had any fish. And someone went and got him the fish and handed it to him. And can you, can you just kind of let yourself get caught up in the awkwardness of this? Like they handed him a piece of fish and it says that he ate it while they watched. Nobody looked away. Like everybody sat there just staring at him, eating a piece of fish. I don't know how long it takes a person to eat a piece of fish. I assume it's not like just pop it in and, and swallow it. Like you're talking a couple of minutes of just eating fish and everybody's watching. Everything is centered on this one act of Jesus eating. Now the reason that this act mattered was because Jesus was trying to prove to them, I'm not some apparition, I'm not some ghost, I'm not some vision that you think you're all collectively having at the same time by some miracle. No, I'm, I'm real, I'm flesh and blood, I can even eat. And so eating was this act of saying, I'm physical, I'm human, I am, I am me. I'm the me that you knew before I went to the cross. Like the guy that you hung out with for the last three years, that's me. Watch, I can even eat this piece of fish. And so this act of eating the fish was this way that Jesus was connecting his uh, human crucified self to his eternal resurrected self. I'm flesh and blood. He showed them his scars. He showed them his hands and his feet. And he asked them, why are you afraid? Why do you doubt? Um, I don't know which one would scare me more. If Jesus were a ghost, or if I knew for sure that he were flesh and blood and real and resurrected from the dead. Because he takes the route of the ghost. Why are you afraid? I'm not a ghost. But isn't it just as terrifying to think that somebody was dead and now they're alive again? Like both, neither of those options are comforting in any way, right? Both of those options ought to terrify you. And so the disciples are saying they're afraid. And Jesus asks them, why are you afraid? It's not really strange for Jesus to ask that, though. He asked the disciples that a lot. Remember when they were in the boat, and the winds and the waves come, and they're terrified, and they wake Jesus up. And the first thing he asks them, why are you afraid? Well, what do you mean, why are we afraid? This storm's about to kill us. It's obviously uh, logical to be afraid right now. This was a common question for Jesus, though. Why are you afraid? Why do you doubt? Why are you so surprised when God does something that you weren't expecting? Why are you so surprised when God does something miraculous? Why are you not already even looking for it? Why are you afraid? He says, when I was with you before. And again, this moment is about connecting who Jesus was before his crucifixion to who Jesus was now in the present moment connecting his earthly self to his resurrected self. And here's why I think Luke does that. He does that to say that if you are a person who believes in the eternal resurrected Christ, that's great. And there are a lot of really amazing things that come along with putting your faith into the eternal resurrected Christ. Things like the assurance of salvation. 
things like um, grace, things like receiving forgiveness from God. And we like all of those things, and we take all of those things, we believe in all of those things. But there's also this other side of it that comes along with the eternal resurrected Christ, and that is the human crucified Jesus. You cannot follow one without following the other. Um, how would you describe Jesus' earthly ministry? You don't have to answer out loud. Just in your head. What, what words would you describe? In all the stories that you know about Jesus, in all the things that you know that Jesus did, what words, what phrases would you use to describe his earthly ministry? Um, what Luke is saying is that those words and those phrases, however you would describe Jesus' earthly ministry, ought to be the way that you describe your own life. Because Jesus is connecting who he was and what he did to this eternal kingdom that's about to just flood through the whole world. And if you're going to be part of this thing, you can't just take the good stuff that comes from being assured of your salvation. You can't just take the good stuff that comes from being in and, and, and knowing that your card has been punched to get to heaven, you can't just take that if you're not also going to take things like mercy, um, healing, justice. If you're not going to speak up on behalf of the poor, if you're not going to speak up on behalf of the hungry, if you're not going to sacrificially give of yourself so that others can have, um, if you're not going to, go, going to do those things, then don't claim the reward of the eternal Christ. Because Jesus said the Messiah would have to suffer and die. He also explained that to the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember that? That that was one of the first things that he opened with with them was, why are you so foolish? Don't you know that the prophets and the law wrote about how the Messiah would have to suffer these things? And then he tells the disciples the same thing. Why do you doubt? Why are you afraid? The Messiah has to suffer these things. Suffering is part of the game. Suffering isn't the thing that we avoid. Suffering is the thing that we expect. Um, I got a new Rob Bell book this week. And I don't care what you think about that. Um, I've been waiting for May 16th. It came out this past Tuesday. And whenever I saw that he was releasing the book, I was like, yes. And I've had it marked on my calendar. Uh, this is not the first but the second time that I showed up to Barnes & Noble as it was opening. And the employee had to go to the back and take it out of the box because they hadn't even put it on the shelf yet. And I don't care. I, I love it. So uh, do whatever you want with that information. Um, but it's, it's good. I mean, there's um, a lot of stuff that I think... Christina also read it, and, and we've had a lot of conversation, uh, especially yesterday. We spent a lot of time talking about it and the things that kind of make you like, eh, I don't know about that. And then other things that, uh, that are just really insightful and, and ways of looking, especially at Scripture, that perhaps you've never really looked at before. But in one part of the book, he talks about Acts. And talks about the spreading of the kingdom of God. And about how Jesus told the disciples that you're going to go into, uh, you're going you're to leave Judea, you're going to go out through Samaria and into the ends of the earth. And so he tells them that shortly before his ascension into heaven, which we'll talk about next week. But then, still all the way into the story, I mean a, a good chunk into the story, they're still there in Jerusalem. They've taken the story nowhere. Um, he says this, in chapter 8 of Acts, the disciples are still in Jerusalem. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus tells them they're going to leave the bubble and go far from home, spreading his message. But seven chapters later, they're still there in the world they've always known. We then read that a great persecution broke out against them, 
and they were scattered to, wait for it, Judea and Samaria, exactly where he said they would go. It takes a little suffering and struggle to get them out of their bubble. Suffering and struggle are things that we avoid with everything we've got. And that's not necessarily wrong. I mean, nobody wants to intentionally walk into a place of suffering and struggle. But the reality is that in order for the kingdom of God to come about, not just in the world around you, but in your own life, often it's suffering that brings it about. Suffering is the gateway to it. And so as much time as we spend... Uh, pursuing our own comfort, and as much time as we spend idolizing our own um, self-promotion and self-glorification, as much time as we spend getting ourselves as far away from suffering as possible, perhaps in doing that, we're missing the kingdom. Um, Maybe our suffering is not something that we turn against God for. Maybe it's not something that we say, well, because this bad thing happened to me, I'm not going to walk away from God. Maybe that bad thing is the thing that God is using to draw you closer. Um, Maybe that's the thing that's unlocking the kingdom for you in your world. Um, In The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard has this brilliant book, and he talks about the kingdom, but he says that the kingdom for all of us is whatever we control. Like you have your own personal kingdom. You have these things over which you have ultimate say. You have these things that you have control over. Whatever it is that you have control over, that's your kingdom. And what Jesus invites you to do is to, uh, through suffering, give your kingdom over to Jesus. Let Jesus take charge of and ownership of everything that you have say over so that something might resurrect in it. And and this is what Jesus is inviting them into. This is why Jesus brings up suffering again, because consider all the suffering that the disciples had to experience. We're going to go through Acts after uh, June 4th is going to be Pentecost. We talked about that last week. June 4th is Pentecost, and from there we're just going to go through a lot of stories in Acts. Um, and, And... Acts is this story of struggle. And it's not the story of the church doing everything in their power to escape struggle. It's actually figuring out how the kingdom of God is manifesting itself through it. And so struggle is part of the game. Um, Finally, the last thing that Jesus talks about. He says, It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations. This is where it gets wacky. Um, This is where the disciples, even if the resurrection wasn't enough to shake them up a little bit, this all nations business is the part that Jesus takes and blows wide open. Because he says that it's in the context of repentance, that everyone who repents can be forgiven. Everybody who repents can receive the kingdom of God. And so this is in the context of repentance. Repentance isn't a weird thing. Everybody is capable of repenting. We talked about Jonah for a few weeks. Even the Ninevites and Jonah were capable of repenting. Repentance wasn't this weird thing. The weird thing is that this grace and this love and this generosity was for all people. That it's for all nations. This isn't just for the Hebrew people. This isn't just for the Jewish people. This is to go out into the whole world and out into the whole earth. And so following uh, the resurrected Christ... And following the human crucified Christ, 
means taking the kingdom to all people, making space for all people so that everybody, so that everyone without exception can experience the power of God and the transformation that Jesus brings about. Um, and so how much space, we asked this on Easter Sunday, how much space do you make in your life for the kingdom of God to manifest itself? Um, how good are you at following not only the eternal resurrected Christ, but also the human crucified Jesus? How closely does your life align with that? Are you just in this thing to receive the blessings and the assurance that come from following the eternal Jesus? Or are you after more? Um, one of the phrases that I've come to love is a more just and generous faith. There's a group of folks that uh, run this organization called the Open Network, and this is their tagline, in pursuit of a more just and generous faith. And I think that's what Jesus invites us into. Uh, through aligning ourselves with his, not only his resurrected life, but through his earthly ministry, he invites us into a more just and generous faith. I think most of us in this room would say that I'm a person who believes the kingdom of God is for everybody. I think most of us in this room would say, yes, I'm not racist, I'm not prejudiced, um, I'm not whatever, I'm not homophobic, I'm not xenophobic, I'm not misogynistic, I'm not any of these things. I think most of us in this room would claim to have this generous and just faith. I speak up for the poor, uh, I'm going to do everything that I can to, to advocate for those who don't have a voice. I, I think that we would all get on board with that. Um, but sometimes we get on board with it theoretically. And we don't get on board with it in reality. Part of what I think Jesus is trying to do here in connecting who he was in his life and ministry with who he is in his eternal resurrected form is I think he's telling us that you cannot just say that you're for the inclusion of everyone when in your life there is no single tangible expression of it that has cost you something. Um, because a lot of us have kind of trained ourselves to say all the right things and to believe all the right things while still maintaining our pursuit of comfort. Um, to say all the right things and claim to speak up for all the right folks while still holding on to this very, very selfish pursuit of my life. Um, and so my question to you is not just what do you think? Um, who do you think Jesus wants you to be? But who are you in reality? Um, are you a person who not only claims to believe something, but who also puts it into practice? Who also exercises this faith, this just and generous faith? Um, because there's a lot of ways to do it. And most of them are very small. This is another thing that Dallas Willard talks about in his book and in his uh, discussion about the kingdom, that the things that you want to do and the things that you need to do in, in terms of like bringing the kingdom alive in your world, most of them are very, very small. And he tells this beautiful story about a guy who started by, uh, I don't know how he kept track of this, but one second, each minute, he thought the name of Jesus. And for several days, he trained himself to do this. For one second, every minute, he thought the name of Jesus. 
And then he started to try to turn what he thought, whenever he thought the name of Jesus, whatever, whatever emotion, whatever feeling, whatever thoughts that brought about, to, to actually manifest them somehow in his life. And over the course of several months, he saw as his kingdom grew. And this isn't like health and wealth gospel. This isn't like his kingdom grew and suddenly he had millions of dollars and the Lord blessed him. In fact, it was kind of the opposite. Like as, as he started turning himself more outward, as he started invoking the name of Jesus one second every minute, he found that the things he held on to sort of faded away. And his kingdom grew because his ability to bless, his ability to share, his ability to give with others grew. And so in some ways he had a lot of say over what went on. He had a lot of control over what went on. But because it was Jesus who had infused that, his say and his control was surrendered to this Jesus who was crucified. He, he died to himself in this control. And so uh, rather than dominating and controlling and amassing a bunch of wealth and power for himself, instead he handed it over and pretty soon his kingdom grew as he blessed more and more and more people. Suppose that's the way we measured success in life. That not, not how much you have accumulated, but how far your generosity can reach. How far your compassion can reach. Um, how far your love and your mercy, your healing can reach. Um, that, that's what I think Jesus invites us into with a just and generous faith. We're going to enter into a time of communion now. If you're serving communion, can you come on up and go up on the stage there behind the table and take the elements? And then I'm going to send you back there with them. Uh, we'll have our communion back there this morning. Um, but we are. We're, we're going to enter into a time of communion. And as we often talk about, communion comes with these two elements. There's this divine element of Christ and who he is in his resurrected form, but then there's also this element of doing this together collaboratively. Um, communion is not an opportunity for you uh, to just focus on yourself. Communion is an opportunity for you as an individual to be part of something collective. It's, a, it's an opportunity for you to talk about how you as a person are falling into the kingdom of God and what Jesus is doing collectively with all of us. And so this morning, um, we're going to stand after I pray, and, and we'll move to the back, and you can take, we've, we've got uh, gluten bread on this side, and we've got gluten-free bread on this side. Uh, so whichever side you need to go to, uh, take your pick. And I'm going to invite you to take the elements and bring them back to your seat, and there's going to be a question up on the board. What part of Jesus' life and ministry fills you with joy and wonder? Um, share that with some people around you. What did Jesus do? That just gives you some joy. What did Jesus do that makes you go, man, I can't believe he did that. And, and in your joy and in your wonder, what's that moving you to do? How's that moving you to act? Who is that moving you to become? Let the joy and wonder not just stay inside you, but let it spill out and, and move you forward through life. Um, and also with a, a nod to our uh, spirit of joy, we're going to do all this to a Chance the Rapper song. So... Uh, that's going to that's gonna give us some joy during our communion time together. Um, so let's stand together, and if you'll just sort of flood into the middle aisles and move to the back and take the elements and then bring them back to your seat, have some discussion. Um, we'll do that for communion this morning. Let's pray together. 
Forgive us, Father, whenever we claim only the blessing that comes from following the resurrected Jesus without claiming the life that comes from following the human crucified Jesus. Uh, Give us both. Give us a heart for both. Um, Give us the assurance that comes from knowing that we're forgiven, but also the humility and and the, the passion that comes from following the Christ who... Uh, who touched lepers, uh, the Christ who sat at tables with sinners, uh, the Christ who forgave prostitutes. Uh, fill us with that heart and with that life. So this morning, uh, through the bread and through the cup, draw us back into your kingdom with you. And it's through the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Go ahead.